right, are we on? Hello, hello, welcome. Good to see you all. Thanks for being here. Tammy said she has nothing to say to you, so she wanted me to start. So that's what you said. I was, ah, no bell. I don't know where the bell. I forgot last week, too. Listen, we just need to know you. It's a blue tradition. And we just need to know you. Now we can start. I came in and I said I was very distracted because there's a Yankee hat in the front row. I'm, I grew up in Massachusetts, Red Sox fan, but now we have, a Cubs, we have a Cubs shirt here too. Any other Red Sox fans? Oh, oh, okay. All right. All right. Extra credit for you all. Appreciate that. God's team. It is God's team. Cubs fans don't pour beer in another? They just grab balls and play and yeah. <laughs> Yes. Hey, let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father God, we're grateful for today, thankful for the chance to come together. We're uh, grateful for your church and for New City uh, and for what it means to each of us and for this body of believers uh, and the opportunity to gather and to study your word. We ask that you uh, open our hearts and minds to what you would have for each of us and for us together. Uh, and uh, just that you give us uh, quiet hearts and minds over the next uh, hour or so as we study your word. Uh, and we're not distracted by things outside of this room or outside of your word in these moments. And we're grateful for you being with us and for your son. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to be back and be with you again. Uh, last week, I listened to Christine's message uh, and so if you want to uh, join the academy teaching staff, it seems like you have to go through a house fire uh, of some sort, uh, since she had that story as well. Uh, but uh, we're grateful for uh, what she taught, and um, I love that she's talked about um, the Israelites. Their history is part of our history, uh, and that's, that's what we're going to talk a lot about tonight, is we're going we're gonna to see some highs and lows of the people of God. Um, but we should be able to see ourselves in that uh, story as we go through it. Uh, when I was fresh out of college, my first job, I was a classroom teacher before I was an administrator, and one of the classes I was assigned to teach was called Bible History, uh, and it was ancient civilizations through the lens of the Bible, and it was, a, it was a fascinating class. I'd never had taken a class like that, and I was teaching it, uh, and so a lot of, uh, as I was preparing for this lesson, I was thinking about that class because we're going we're gonna to have a lot of maps tonight, so I apologize. I hope you like maps uh, because there's a lot of things going on in the ancient world that has an impact on the part of the story of God's story that we're learning from uh, with our session this week. And so one of my closest friends, his name was Jeff Adams. Uh, the Lord took him home uh, about 20 years ago, uh, but he was a college roommate, and then we were both teaching at the same school in New York. He was an English teacher, I was a history teacher, uh, and he was, I was thinking about him this week when I was thinking about the southern kingdom and the, the highs and lows as they kept going through, and uh, we're going to build false idols, we're going to tear them down, we're going to build false idols, we're going to tear, and this is what they kept going through, and I remember distinctly one time when we were in college, we decided we're going to take, we're going to take a road trip, uh, and so we were traveling to go visit baseball stadiums uh, during one of our breaks, and so we're on this trip. And Jeff was a very charismatic believer uh, and uh, strong in his faith, but he also loved rock and roll music. And so we got to a uh, gas station, and we were filling up, and he came out with some new CDs. This looks like a crowd who knows what a CD would If I did this at my school, they'd be like, what are you talking about? All right. So he came out with some new CDs. I believe it was Def Leppard. Um, I'm trying to think of who else it was. I, I, I distinctly remember Jeff, uh, Def Leppard, maybe some Van Halen. And so he, he was driving his car, so he put it in. He was in charge of the radio, and so he started playing it. And then literally about 45 minutes down the road, uh, he felt convicted that we should not be living or listening to rock music. Uh, so he took it out, and he threw it out the window. Again, I don't condone littering, uh, but he felt like we got to get, get Satan's music out. And so he threw it out the window. Uh, and then he put something else in. I don't know if it was 
Sandy Patty or whoever it was, but uh, Striper maybe, Russ Tap, I don't know, uh, Petra. And so then the next gas stop, he goes into the gas station. He comes out, Def Leppard again. And Van Halen or whatever it is, we get back in the car and we go through the same routine again. We go for about 45 minutes. He feels convicted. He takes out the music, out the window, back to Sandy Patty and Michael W. Smith. And that was our routine of going on this road trip uh, with Jeff. I tell you that story because that is what the Southern Kingdom is doing. It is a fascinating time because they build up these false idols and we're going to worship this. And then a good king comes and says, no, we're going to tear it down and throw it out the window. And then they have a, 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 a session where things are going better. And then we have a new king, and we build it back up, and then we tear him down, and we go through this kind of cycle of false idol worship uh, that eventually will lead to the downfall uh, of the southern kingdom. Most of us cannot visually look at false idols in our life, but we all have false idols in our life, uh, and they're all over our culture. Uh, and, and so hopefully as we go through today, that's a little bit about what I was thinking about as I went through this lesson. What are, what are those idols that I keep putting up? And then God convicts me, and I tear them down, and then I get into a season, and I put them back up, and then I tear them down, and it's part of our story. The story of the southern kingdom is part of our story, just like uh, Christine said last week. So hopefully that is an image to think about uh, as we go through this, the title of this section, you know, by our author is Judah's Unrepentant Sin. And it leads to their downfall. Uh, and, and that's what we're going to study. So there's no spoiler alert. You know what's happening, right? It's unrepentant sin, and they're going to wound up in exile at the end of this part of our story uh, as we continue. Does anybody remember what Christine said last week? People need to do what? She's talking about this time period. She's talking about some of the kings before we're going to get to in this other game. But she said, the prophets are calling them to do this, or people need to do this in their lives. Right before repent, remember, and then repent. Remember, and then she said, we need to remember, and then we need to repent, and then what happens? And God restores, right? We remember, we repent, God restores. Jeff was remembering, maybe we shouldn't listen to this music out the window, restore, and then we go through the cycle. This is what is taking place. We need to remember, and then we repent, and then God restores. This is the story starting in Genesis 3 all the way to modern day as we walk with Christ. So today, our bottom line is God is true to his word. Why would that be the bottom line of this section of the Bible? What am I referring to that he's true to? The Mosaic Covenant? Is that what you're going to say as well? Yeah, the prophets said, that, hey, this is what's coming, so he's true to his word. You go back to the covenants, whether it's Moses, you can go to the David's covenant, but God is true to his word. And boy, this one's the hard part. His wrath is a function of his love for us. His wrath is a function of his love for us. I remember being a kid, and my brothers or I did something, and my parents had this line when they were disciplining us. This hurts me more than it's going to hurt you. Right? Anybody else? Okay. Anybody as a kid go, I'm never going to say that to my kid. And then what do we say to our kid? This hurts me more. God's wrath. This is a hard one to wrap our heads around because we're going to see his wrath in this part of the, the story. And it's harsh. But it is a function of his love for us. And God's wrath in our own lives can be harsh. And it is a function for his love for us. And that's hard. And that's really hard to explain to non-believers. But it's one of the ultimate questions they ask. How can he be a loving God if? World disaster. Whatever you want to put into that blank at the end. But if we don't have a good answer for that, it's hard to be a great witness for our Savior if we don't have an answer for that. And part of that would be a failure to remember 
his word and his actions. But again, all this goes back to Genesis 3. His wrath was to take Adam and Eve out of the garden. And then we can start going all the way through the story, through Abraham, through the Israelites being enslaved, through wandering in the desert. I mean, you just keep going that, unfortunately, God has to continue to act because, as he has taught us, there are consequences to our actions. Um, So our bottom line, God is true to his word, and his wrath is a function of his love for us. So as a way of reminder, the C stands for creation, God's desire to dwell with us. That's where we started, and we see, again, that theme all the way through. The A is Abraham, okay, the one person to the one family to the one nation, God's pattern as he begins to uh, work through Abraham and then his family and then the nation. S is Sinai. What did we learn there? As we studied through the S part of casket. Commandments, God's law, tabernacle, God's desire to dwell. (laughs) I'm sorry? They started making idols. I mean, poor Aaron, right? Moses is up in the mountain. He comes down, and there it is. Okay, so we had slavery, we had Exodus, we have the the law, conquering, and then we finally do conquer, and we get into the promised land. And what happens? What's the what happens first? What before we got to the K? Judges, and you remember the cycle of the judges, which is very similar to what we're talking about uh, as we go through Kings. The cycle. That takes place. And so then we get to the K, the K, which is Kings. And this is the last lesson of the K. Because next week uh, we will talk about the exile and then the temple. Uh, but you have this kind of theme of reset or starting over. So I know this has been shown in multiple colors and variations over the years, but here is our map of the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. The 12 tribes divide. Does anybody remember the first king of the north? Jeroboam, is that right? Very good. And who was the king of the south, the first one? Rehoboam. I grew up in a town called Rehoboth, so I always want to say Rehoboam. But, uh, so you had Jeroboam in the north. Who was the rightful heir of the two? Rehoboam was the rightful heir. Jeroboam, actually, military leader, uh, almost like a COO of the time under Solomon, but he takes over the north and he takes the 10 tribes. Rehoboam takes the south and the two tribes, and you have your divide here. And so we're going to come back to this map uh, as we go through, but we've studied the northern kingdom. How many good kings, according to the biblical account, how do we know if it's a good or bad king when we read kings? It tells us. What's the phrase? Did well, did good in the sight of the Lord, or did evil in the sight of the Lord, right? So it's a pretty easy scorecard if you want to keep it. Did evil in the sight of the law and the Lord, and did good in the sight of the Lord. And so how many good kings, according to the book of kings, was there in the northern tribe? Zero. Right? So what happens? Well, they get exiled first. Okay, if you remember, what did Jeroboam do immediately when he became the king of the northern kingdom? That's right. He set up a capital in the Samaria. Oh, look, that works all the way from here. He set up his capital here. Then he put one false worship uh, temple, high places here. And then he put one at the top of the map. It's not shown. And, you know, basically he said, hey, you're going to go here instead of where? Jerusalem. And this is important even for the part we're going to talk about tonight because Jerusalem plays a very important role. Uh, in tonight's lesson. And so Jeroboam set this up and said, this is how we're going to do it. All the kings of the north were evil in the eyes of the Lord. All right. So next week, we're going to have a test on all the kings. And so you could just guess a name that begins with a J and a lot of vowels after it. And, and you will get some partial credit okay, as you go through this. And so, again, this is just helpful uh, for you in terms of trying to understand things were happening at the same time. And again, uh, as you've heard, the Bible is not written in chronological order. Even the book of Jeremiah is not in chronological order, which is, can be confusing if you read part of those sections. Um, 
that were assigned this week. But this shows you what's going on at the, basically the same time. And I think it's important as you think about ancient history, uh, the kingdoms are somewhat fluid. Because you could be a king, but you're really a vassal king. Right? And uh, so what does that mean to be a vassal king in the ancient world? Yeah, you're paying tribute somewhere. I'm sorry, you, I think you said someone else is the authority. You're, you're, uh, maybe you could call it a puppet king, but you're in place, but there's really a higher authority somewhere else, usually in another country, a stronger world power, whatever the case may be. And so sometimes these kings, there's a couple of them that are vassal kings. Some of them are actually really in power. Uh, so there's a lot of different things taking place here, but this just gives you the lay of the land between both sides. Why did the people want a king? Right? Everyone else had one. They said, hey, we want to be like the other countries. Uh, We want to be like the other surrounding nations. We want a king. God said, no. And he told them why. And he said, all the things that are going to take place, that's God being true to his word, right? He said, hey, they're going to tax you. They're going to take your young men. Uh, They're going to use your people for labor. They're going to take your best fruits, all the things. And God said, this is what's going to happen. And he warned them and warned them. And he said, okay, we're going to give you a king. And he had three united kings. We remember them. If you remember, I did the walk through the Bible. We said Saul was, does anybody remember what we, we had hearts for each of them? Anybody remember that? David was full heart. Saul was no heart. Solomon was Half a heart, right? That's how walk through the Bible did it. But you had the three united kings, Saul, David, Solomon, and then you had the split uh, that you see here. And I loved what Neil said a couple weeks ago. If you could describe this chart with a two-word phrase, I think it was a, a phrase that Neil used. Anybody remember what it was? Incremental degradation. This is a downhill slide. Basically, if you're looking at ancient history and what's going on, incremental degradation. I don't know if Neil came up with that or he took that from another author. We're going to give you credit. I got it from somewhere else. Oh, I was going to give you credit. Neil's. All right, I just learned tonight. Neil's written two books, so we all should go to Amazon and grab Neil's books. Uh, but uh, incremental degradation is a description of what is taking place here. But if we start at the top. Basically, 933, and we go all the way to 586, which is where we're going to leave off tonight, okay? Any math majors in the, in the house? How many years is that? It's an incremental degradation over 347 years. How long has our country been in existence? close to 250 years. If you start at 1776, obviously you can go back with the pilgrims. I understand that. But for me, I was thinking about that this week. That puts this in a little bit of context, right, of the span of history that we're talking about. And we're talking about generations of generations of generations because their life expectancy was shorter, that the things these people are going through, sometimes in the Bible, we look at it and we turn the page and we're like, hey, it just kind of happened like this. But in reality, this is a long stretch. So what is, what is up here on the on the chart is longer than our country's been around. And think about how we think about how long ago was 1776. And so it just puts it in context a little bit as we think about history and this time period. Okay, so we're going to focus on these kings, starting with Ahaz, and then we end with Zedekiah. One of these names, according to my research, is a top 10 boy name in the last two years. That is right. It is Josiah. Not a lot of Hezekiahs out there. <laughs> Jehoiakim. All right? Too many letters to fill out on the standardized tests. So who are the two good kings? There's two good kings up here according to the account. Josiah and Hezekiah. So we got two smiley faces for them. There are two good kings. Christine talked a little bit last week about Hezekiah. What did he do? Oh, I'm sorry. 
He built all the tunnels. That is exactly right. Why did he build the tunnels? If you go back here, there's a little hint. Oh, sorry. Look at where Hezekiah is. Right here. And look what, what's happening right here. The Assyrians. Right? So the Assyrians have come, and the Assyrians have attacked, and they've conquered the northern kingdom. Now, there's no line between the northern and southern kingdom. Right? And so they, the Assyrians didn't go, oh, okay, we're done. Right? They, were, they kept going south, and they got to Jerusalem, and they were attacking Jerusalem. They were, their intent was to take over the southern kingdom as well. But Hezekiah built the, they bunkered down inside of Jerusalem, built the tunnels. God delivered them because Hezekiah did what was right in the, in the Lord's eyes, and God restored them. And then the Assyrians, due to some other issues they were dealing with in other parts of their empire, retreated and allowed Hezekiah to stay, and Hezekiah began to rebuild the worship of the Lord in the community and of the southern kingdom, and then Hezekiah was no longer the king as he passed away and turned it over to Manasseh, who really took things downhill quickly. Uh, rebuilt the false temples, rebuilt all the idols, and brought them back, and that really began the beginning of the end. And so outside of those two, you have all kings who did evil. And some of these kings, again, were vassal kings. Some of them were very short tenures, and you can read all about it in the timeline. Hopefully, this is a great guide for you. It shows you which kings did what. Um, but for the most part, other than Josiah. Now, Christine talked about him last week. What did we learn about him when he took the throne? How old was he? Does anybody remember? Eight years old. Now, again, I work at a school. There's a lot of eight-year-olds. I'm not putting any of them in charge, right? But eight years old, and he reigned a long time, and he was a good king. And he did a lot of good things, and again, he brought back. Uh, and it's this fascinating story. Does anybody remember, like, kind of the oddest story of Josiah? They, they were doing a building project, and what happened? They found the law. You're like, I didn't know we lost it, right? But they found the law. And then he brought it out, and he had it read, and then he read it to the people. Um, they took down the false idols. And again, here's our remember, found the law, repent, tear down the idols. God restores and gives them a time of peace, uh, and they flourished. And he reminded the people of God's promises and of the covenants. And we go through all of that. Now, all, this, all the kings, at the same time, we have the prophets, and so we're going to talk tonight about Jeremiah. And you can see Jeremiah on there. That's his stretch. The way I try to do this is to show you which kings are around when Jeremiah is the prophet. The timeline does it as well. But he starts during Josiah's time, also a young person. We believe Jeremiah, based on Jeremiah 1, he was probably a teenager when God had him start his ministry. And he was there for a long time. Uh, and But we're going to talk about him uh, in a little bit, but he's probably the most prominent of the prophets at the end of the southern kingdom. If you remember last week, as we talked about Ahaz and then Hezekiah, Christine mentioned Isaiah and Micah, uh, and she talked about them amplifying history. Uh, and then here are some of the other prophets during this time period. And so again, you can see them all sprinkled in there. Um, and I think next week we're going to talk about Ezekiel. Is that correct? Tammy's going to teach next week about Ezekiel, um, and uh, probably a lot of us obviously are more familiar with Daniel, uh, and, but Daniel is during this time period, and then he is exiled, as we know. Um, but this just gives you hopefully a visual of who's around at the same time, because Daniel and Jeremiah were contemporaries, uh, and we always don't think about that as we go through the Bible, as with Ezekiel uh, during the time as well. So, any questions on that? I know that's a lot on a visual there, but I thought it helps frame our conversation uh, a little bit. Uh, much more active, because that's kind of what we're told. So, you know, the, the way that a lot of the prophets, during the reign of so-and-so, the prophet was active. But there are hints about ages a little bit. So for Jeremiah, we pretty much know his stretch of life. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah, Manasseh had a fascinating story, right? Because he actually got exiled and then brought back uh, at one point. So the way I did it was how they are introduced in Kings, uh, which at the very beginning, and that's how he was introduced. Yeah, but that's a great point because he does have a, if you, if you dive into the story, we're not going to spend a lot of time, but he gets sent away, then he repents, he comes back. Um, he's, a, he's a fascinating part of the story. Yeah. And that's this whole concept that it's very fluid, who's in charge, who's under who, as we go through the time period. Any other questions? Oh, I was hoping no one would see Joel. <laughs> I'm going to ask Tammy because she works for the church. <laughs> I know I saw him when I was looking through this and I didn't put him on the chart. It is on the timeline, right? But I'm... The bottom of uh, Jehoiakim, right, right at the end. Yeah, because remember the book said Joel jumping... What was the three J's in the book? Anybody remember? Jumping. Yeah. Because he talked about the locusts are going to come, and he's referring to the Babylonians. Thank you for bailing me out, whoever found Joel on the end. So Joel would be almost similar to where Ezekiel is on this chart. Jumping creatures. Yeah. Okay, last thing I'm going to put up here. I'm going to add one more piece. Who's in charge in terms of the superpowers? So this is the reign of the Assyrian Empire. And then here's where the Babylonians come in. And so this is important to our story uh, because the northern kingdom is conquered by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom is conquered by the Babylonians. And remember, we talked about Hezekiah defended the southern kingdom against the Assyrians. They, they tried to come down uh, and finish the sweep, basically, on the way to Egypt. Uh, and then the Babylonians are going to take them over later. And so that gives you a picture. And then who, if I was to add one more at the end of the Babylonian, who's next? Who's the next world power? The Persians or the Medes, the Persians. And then who's after the Persians? This, right before the Greeks, you're going to have Alexander the Great, and then you're going to have the Greeks, and then you're going to have the Romans. Why is that important? Because that sets the stage for the New Testament. Right, and the, the Roman Empire and the roads and Pax Romana and Jesus being there and that allows the church to spread. There's so much history there, but it's really this straight line of superpowers in the area. Why is Israel so important at this time period? Why, why does Assyria or Babylon or the Babylonians or the Persians or Alexander the Great, why did any of them care about this stretch of land? It's the trade routes, right? It's the connection between the two other ancient world powers, which was Mesopotamia and Egypt, right? And so it's stuck in between. I'm going to show that in a map in a second. But this is an important piece of land for the empires, for transportation, for trade. And that's why it exchanges hands during all these time periods as we go through. Okay. Yes. Yeah, well, actually, Josiah bridges the gap, uh, but I, I think God used Hezekiah to allow the southern kingdom to survive, um, and then I think, I mean, through Joel and the other prophets, they predict that the Babylonians are coming. So I don't, I don't know if it's a, a tied significance like you're saying, but it definitely plays a role in the story. Okay, again, I told you I was a history teacher, so I apologize, but here's, here's our Babel, I mean, our Syrian empire. This stretch of land between the two rivers, what is this called? I just called it out loud. Mesopotamia, believed to be where what took place? Garden of Eden. Also where who came from? Abraham. Right, so you start to see some themes here. If you go through casket, creation, Abraham, this region is so important because it's called the Fertile Crescent in some ways, of the ancient world. It looks like a crescent, including Israel. And this is what I was talking about. It's such an important highway, if you think about it this way, between Egypt and Mesopotamia. 
world power, world power in the middle. Why don't they just go like this? It's a desert, right? And so that's the way they had to travel, right? And so that's why it's called the Fertile Crescent. And so here in the purple is the beginning of the Assyrian Empire. And we look right here, probably the capital at the time. Who got called there? Jonah, right? And so when Jonah's living down here and God says, hey, you're going to go to Nineveh, he's like, ah, I'm not sure I want to do that, Okay. And it wasn't he was afraid of the travel. It was basically it was the Assyrian Empire. And he's like, ah, oh, these people aren't the nicest people, right? And so then you could see the different kings that are located for their leaders, but they began to expand. They go green and then, I mean, purple to green, and they eventually get down here. This is where Hezekiah holds them off uh, at the bottom. But that's the Assyrian Empire. They were known for uh, being a militant people, but they also have a great tradition of literature if you go back. And so it's pretty fascinating uh, if you go back into their time and see even some of their stories that align with the biblical account, uh, a flood account, uh, and things along those lines. As we know, Jonah went there, um, and they would, when they conquered, even though they were king, you got to remember, trying to control this size of a land mass as a king at this time without fast transportation without email, without all the stuff we're used to. It's a hard area to control. And you can't visit your whole empire. And so what they did is, as we said earlier, they established vassal kings in a lot of the places. And they would put a king and they say, hey, you're in charge. And they would put a local person in charge. Why would they do that? Gain loyalty. They relate to the people. So they think it's less likely they're going to revolt. Right? And so, it's, it, so they had a method of, hey, we'll put a vassal king, they'll pay us tribute, we'll leave them in power, they get to stay in the, in the palace, and they pay us tribute, and they would go through it that way. And so they kind of established this system of vassal kings, uh, but they had a hard time subduing this part of their kingdom. And so they had some vassal kings that were Babylonians, uh, and they had a hard time subduing them, and so eventually... A couple of the kings came together, and they took it over, and they overthrew the Assyrians. And so now you have the Babylonian Empire, which comes into play. Who's the most prominent Babylonian emperor that we are familiar with from the biblical account? Nebuchadnezzar, right? But what do you notice about the Babylonian Empire that was different than the Assyrian Empire? It's bigger, bigger. I heard Egypt. What else? They went into the desert, actually. Yep. They grew up here. Modern-day Turkey, they grew into Turkey. Right? And this is going to be important because they're eventually going to get over here with our empires, and that's where the Greeks and the Macedonians are going to come in. They grew up into this region as well. Uh, and so they did expand beyond what the Assyrians had. Habakkuk, uh, in his account, he called the Babylonians the people of the hook uh, because one of the ways they would exile people was literally with a hook. Uh, and so they were known brutally in terms of the ancient world because they would go in, and as we know, they would take the young and the educated, and they would exile them. And they would bring them to their place. Why would they do that? So they can control them, and they could indoctrinate them. And this is the story of Daniel, right? And so they're going to bring them. Ezekiel goes through this. And so they bring them, and they can control them, and then they leave some people there. And so it's important we think about the exile. There are Israelites remaining in Israel in the promised land, but it's typically not the wealthy or the educated that are remaining. That's a, one of the That is correct. Yeah. So they take people out and they bring other people in and they would move people around. And again, part of that was to spread them out, spread out. And so you're living with strangers. And again, it was a control mechanism because they figured if they took my family and they took your family and they spread us out and then pushed us back together, that we're less likely to unite and rebel. And so that's how they would do it and part of their control method. Their capital city, as we know, was Babylon at the, in the ancient world. Uh, Herodotus, who was a Greek historian, said it's probably the world's most splendid city. It was a huge city in terms of probably four square miles. 
Uh, Baal worship, among other gods, were very important at the time. Um, and so we're going to talk about the Babylonians in the direct part of this story, but we do know after the Babylonians, who comes next? And there's the Persian Empire. And this is Cyrus the Great, right? And he's the one who actually going to let the Israelites go back. So what he did is the Persians came in and they reversed. They reversed what the Babylonians and the Syrians did to spread them out. He's throwing people and letting them go back, except for the ones he really didn't like. He didn't like the Lydiaites who were up here. He kept them out. Uh, but again, you can see sp expanding into Macedonia, getting close to Greece, all of Turkey. Now, what's interesting, if we take a map of Paul's letters, there's some similarities. Right? And so it's important to think about God is using what has taken place in the ancient world, in these ancient superpowers, and he is setting the table for when he's going to send his son. And it's the prophets during this time period, Isaiah, who tell us that the Savior's coming. But God is preparing all this because it's going to be very important that the Romans are in power when he comes to allow the message, to allow Paul to travel and et cetera. And so, again, a lot of maps, but hopefully it gives you a little bit of a picture of what was taking place in the ancient world. And again, as I think God is setting the table for his ultimate plan of sending his son for us. Okay, that was a lot. Any questions on all that? My ancient, ancient history background? I apologize. Yes. Okay, the prophets. Remember, they, they're called, we've dealt with the prophets the last couple of weeks, speak on God's behalf, the covenant watchdogs. They call out idolatry and injustice. They challenge us to repent. Why did God need prophets? He calls these men. There's a couple of women referenced in the Old Testament as well, but mostly men. Why did God need prophets? Who should have been the prophets? The priests and the kings, right? But neither one of them were really fulfilling the role they're supposed to, so God has to bring about these other men to be prophets and to come in. So we're going to talk about Jeremiah. What was Jeremiah known as? What was the, his kind of title as a prophet? Anybody remember? I'm sorry? Prophet of doom. Prophet of doom. <laughs> that, is, that is true. Some commentaries call him the weeping prophet because he's really telling the end of an age, right? And, and boy, he had a tough assignment. He was a youth, probably an older teenager when he was called. He goes all the way through the end of the southern kingdom. Throughout, if you read through Jeremiah, and again, it's not in chronological order, which makes it hard sometimes to follow what's taking place. But if you read through the story, his family turns on him. He's attacked by a mob. He's put in stocks and whipped. He's threatened. He's ridiculed. God tells him he can't marry, so he's alone. There's a season where he has to put on a yoke and, and carry that and walk that around as a symbol of the Babylonians coming. I mean, this guy had a tough, tough assignment. And he faithfully went through this. He eventually flees to Egypt. Um, but his whole message during this time period was, look out. Remember what God's done and look out what's coming. The Babylonians are coming. And that's not a, that's not a good story. The Israelites weren't like, oh, great, thanks, Jeremiah. He was ridiculed as he went through this. I, was, uh, I play a decent amount of golf, uh, and I play with my two sons. And our whole family, uh, if, you, if you see our family, all wear glasses of some sort, except for one. Uh, our son Jacob, for some reason, of all of our kids, he got terrible teeth, but he got great eyes. I, so I either spent money on orthodontia or glasses. Some both. Okay. Uh, but so when I played, we were playing golf the other day with Jacob and Jonah, my other son, who has terrible eyesight like I do. We hit the ball, Jake, or Jonah and I, and we immediately turned to Jacob and go, where is it? Right? Because sometimes it depends on the sky or whatever. I don't know where it went. But he can always see it. 
and he can look ahead and he can see where it landed and he can tell me, hey, you're in the sand trap or you're near, or here, you're, you're going to be blocked out by the trees. He can look ahead and see what I'm about to deal with. And as I was playing with him the other day, I was thinking, this is what Jeremiah is doing. He's looking ahead and going, we got some problems ahead, but no one's listening. And I was thinking, what would happen if, if, if Jacob said, hey, you're over there, you're by the sand trap, and I just walked over here, and I started looking for my ball over here. I'm never going to find it. But that's exactly what was happening with Jeremiah. He's like, look ahead, here's what's coming. We need to repent, remember the law, and the people just walk the other way. And that's where God's wrath came in. The prophet role, Second Peter says this, above all, you must understand that no prophecy in the scripture ever came from the prophets themselves or because they wanted to prophesy. It was the Holy Spirit who moved them, who moved the prophets to speak from God. It's a great picture from Peter about the role of the Spirit in the Old Testament. These were tough assignments. Now, one of the things that Jeremiah dealt with, and it was the first question in our homework, was he kept saying this, and the people didn't believe him because they had a false security. What was their false security? They had the temple. They said, hey, we're good. God's not going to conquer the temple because God is in the temple. So there's no way. We'll just stand closer to the temple. We're not going to get conquered. And it was a false security. So here's what we'd like to do is I'd love for you to go in. And this is your first question. So if you brought it and you had done that already, you can look at your answers. But read Jeremiah 7. Why do you think the people of Judah believe that their election, land, law, covenant, temple, monarch gave them favored status with God and protection against foreign invasion? Jeremiah lays it out pretty clearly for us in 7. So take a look at that, write down some answers, and then talk about it at your table, and then we'll come back and talk about it as a group. All right, let's... Uh, Let's come on back together. Any, I should have warned you, that's a long passage. You could have skimmed. Hopefully that's what you did. But uh, I mean, there's a lot in there. But I think I heard someone over here say, this is, that would not be the message I want to deliver. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a tough message, right, that Jeremiah is bringing. But what, what do you think the author asking us this question, um, why did they believe this gave them favored status? We mentioned the temple. Obviously, that's a big piece of this. What else? Yep. Yep. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, so they knew they knew the promises. We hope they knew the promises. This is your land, you're going to be blessed, you're my people. Why are we still doing things wrong? And were they connecting the two? Even though we're doing things wrong, we're, God's never going to take the land because this is our land. He gave it to us. He promised it, so he's never going to take it. And I think that was a tension that they were managing uh, in their own hearts and minds. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's a, I like what you said. It's kind of the good luck charm, right? We got the ark. Because you remember sometimes when they went to battle, they brought, they brought the ark with them. And God did give them favor. Right? I, was thinking, I was reading uh, recently, I was doing a chapel. We were talking about uh, Deborah uh, and the judges and the command to she gave, I think it was to Barak. I'm trying to remember which of the guys to go out to war. He goes, I'll go if you go. 
and, and his thought process was, that, well, if I have God's spokesperson with me, I'll be okay. It's the same kind of concept that if, if, if I have the right person, the right thing, the right place, God's going to be okay with us. What else? Yes, sir. The monarchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So if they're remembering the promises, like, well, one of David's people, right? So we're going to be here forever. Yeah. 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 That, I, that's what I was thinking about was they've had this stretch. They're like, well, it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> right? It, it, multiple generations. Yeah. Good point. Yes. Yeah, God's in the temple. There's no way he's going to take the temple. There's no way he's going to allow the Babylonians, this evil empire, to come and take us. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else? So this is one of those moments where we look back and we go, I mean, what, what were these guys thinking? How, how did they miss it? I, I feel that a lot of times when I read the Gospels. You're like, how did the disciples just not get it? And then I wonder if God's going, how do you not get it sometimes? Uh, And so as I was thinking about Jeremiah 7, it made me think about Philippians 3. Because you know what? Paul dealt with the exact same issue. And so what I want you to do is go into Philippians 3, and it's really uh, verses 1 through 11. Philippians 3. And now Paul's dealing with the tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. What did Paul explain to the Jewish readers of his letter that could be his or their false securities? And what was Paul's encouragement to the Philippians in the midst of that tension? So Philippians 3, 1 through 11, just jot down, what does Paul say could be false securities of the Jewish believers? And what does Paul encourage them to do with those false securities? All right, let's come back. So Paul, Paul here is dealing with this tension between can the Gentile believers really be believers? How are we going to handle each other's, the customs? There's a lot of nuance into this. And Paul goes through this list of things. It's almost Paul's resume in some ways, Right? So what are the things that Paul listed about himself as to make the argument that he's making? Anybody? I'm from the line of Benjamin. Favored line. I'm a Pharisee, which means what? Because we, we think of it negatively, but what does it mean in the ancient world? He's a scholar, he's a student, he's very educated, he's probably of the wealthier class because you couldn't get to be to that. So he, he's not, we look at it because we know the whole story, we see the name, but the Pharisees, that's a badge in some ways of, hey, I'm educated, I'm a student of the law, I probably know the law better than everyone else. What else did he say? Circumcised on day eight. <laughs> I did it the right way, is what he's saying, right? What else? I'm sorry? I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm the American of Americans. Right? (laughs) He's zealous. I'm blameless as a law follower. I have followed the law. So Paul makes this whole, he lays out his resume. He goes, look guys, I'm I'm better than all you. If we're, if we're going to measure each other, if we're, if we're going to use some kind of yardstick, I've got it all. And then I heard it said over here, and, and it depends what version you're reading, but I remember growing up, what does he say? It is rubbish. It's garbage. All of this doesn't matter. And what does he say matters? Which is encouragement. Your faith in Christ your relationship with Christ. Righteousness comes through Christ alone. And so he says, all this, all this stuff that I have, which, 
which could be so important and puts me on a pedestal. Tim Keller says it this way. If you think about when you were, when you were younger and you would play war and you would flip a card, right? And you're hoping your card's higher. That he says, as adults, we do that. We flip cards to show how more important we are. Let me give you an example, right? As a head of school, here's what happens. If I go to a head of school conference and I sit down at a table like this and there's another head of school, where are you from? I'm from Charlotte. What's the very next question they ask? How big is your school? How big is your school? No one asks how good is your school. It's how big. There's an assumption. And so then I can say, well, my school is this big. And you play that card. Or my wife and I, when we go out and sometimes we're meeting other couples, and this conversation goes, well, how many kids do you have? <laughs> Boom, I got seven. I win every time, typically. Right? And it's not, this is what Paul's doing. He's saying, I got all the cards, guys. I can play all the cards, but it doesn't matter. It's the same thing they were doing in the ancient world. We got all the cards. We got the temple. We got the southern king. We got David's line. And they're playing the cards, and it didn't matter at the end of the day. It's rubbish, as Paul said. We can't count it as lost. So now, let's take it. We did Old Testament. We did New Testament. What about today? What are the false securities or Christian pillars that we believe in, right? So we did, we did Jeremiah's time. We did Paul in the New Testament. What about today? So just talk about that at your table. What are some of the Christian pillars or false securities we may have or ways we try to win God's favor in the modern church? All right, what do we, what do we have for some answers? What are some of the, the false securities or the Christian pillars of today? Going to church. I go every Sunday. I sit in the same seat. I'm there every Sunday. I I swear that you're front one row ahead of me to the right to the left. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I've had a couple times I've come into people in my seat and I'm righteous anger. Just so you know, righteous anger. <laughs> what else? Give money to the church. I'm in academy on a Wednesday night, and some guy's talking until 8 o'clock. Yes, that's great. I went on a mission trip. I volunteer. I serve. Yep. Personal discipline. I'm going to ignore the answer I heard here. <laughs> My kid goes to a Christian school. We deal with that. There's no doubt. That's, a, that's an answer, right? What else? What if you teach at academy? Special place in heaven is what I've heard. Yes. <laughs> or teach at a Christian school or both. Wow. Yeah. What else? Study in scripture. Yep. Yeah. How many Bible studies you in? Yeah. Someone said something over here. Went to seminary. Educated, remember Paul, he talked about that. Tithes and offerings, I give back. How famous or influential is your pastor? Yeah, we just went bigger picture, did we not? But this is important because I think you're onto something there, right? Because a lot of times, because we are good Americans, we always think individualistic, right? And it's very interesting that a lot of what God's doing is through community or bigger groups. How big is your church? Who else goes there? The celebrity component of it. What else? Baptism. I, yeah, I went through confirmation. Good to go. I was baptized. Not only was I baptized, I was baptized in Israel. Or I was baptized wherever. Or so-and-so baptized me. Yeah, I was immersed. <laughs> Anything else? I went to the Holy Lands. What's Oh, I had it written down on my list. Political party. I do believe there's a little bit of a movement in our country 
the, you know, it depends which, who you want to read and what you want to watch. But there is a little bit of a Christian nationalist movement out there that is saying, if you are a Christian, you are a blank. You're part of this party. And America is God's second chosen nation. And thus, America will never fail. I have not found that in my scriptures. But maybe you can. But I absolutely think there's some elements of that in the American church. And that would be a false security of our church. And again, that's that community. And God did a lot looking at groups versus just individuals. And I think we as a church, you talked about the celebrity component of the church in America. That's an interesting piece. That could be a false security. Anything else? Just doing stuff. All of these are idols at the end of the day, right? Remember a couple weeks ago, I, I said the Tim Keller quote, it all begins with idolatry. All the other sins flow out of idolatry. And he wrote a great book years ago called Counterfeit Gods. And he boiled it down. You usually can get to three. Money, power, and sex. And usually everything's coming out of there. And so he talks about the counterfeit gods in our culture uh, as well. And so hopefully you see there's really nothing new under the sun. And so we look back and we go to Jeremiah's time, like, how did you guys not see this? How did you not know what was about to happen? And then we go to Paul's time, we're like, how did they not understand this? And then we look at ourselves and we have the same problems. And the call to us is exactly the same. Remember, repent, and God will restore. And that pattern is important. But in the middle of that is the wrath part, right? And so we won't do this at the table. Let's do this as a group. But so if you look at this, even, the, even with that, there is an element of God's wrath that comes. The Babylonians come. He takes Daniel, Ezekiel. They're exiled. The nation is decimated. The temple destroyed, which they never thought would happen. God's wrath is real. So how do we explain that? His wrath brings him back. It's often what leads to repentance. You think of your own life, sometimes it's the hardest things that we go through in life that bring us back to the Lord. And I'm not, again, this, this is where we can get tough theological conversations of linking, you know, hardships in life and God's wrath and what, you know, what caused that and didn't cause that. But again, thinking more God's wrath, big picture right, in terms of God's wrath in their sin in the world. Uh, and there are consequences to those sins. And so it's not necessarily just linking it to what happened in my life, but it's what's happened to us together as God's people that God's wrath is real because sin is real and sin has consequences. And so, again, I think as, as Americans and as our, we like to go individual, I think this concept, we have to think bigger picture. Because we are living in parts of God's wrath because we live in a sinful world. And that's a piece of this world. But it's, a lot of that leads us back to him. Because when we go through that, it reminds us. And we look back and then repent and God restores. Other thoughts on this? And this is a hard one to throw up at 745, so I recognize that. But. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're right, because if we go back to that, I mean, there's a lot of years up there that are represented. Again, we don't think about it that way, but it is a slow wrath, a slow to anger. Yeah. Yeah. Back to his intent, right? You go, we're, going, we're going all the way back to God's intent in Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation and that, that push to the Sabbath. Yeah, I love that connection that was made. The wrath is rooted in love. It is. And if you love but it's hard to understand, but it is. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, 
It's rooted in love, and he sends his son out of that love, but the son had to endure the wrath. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. That was great. Yeah. And I love to put the justice in there. I was thinking about it as discipline. Like we talk to, as, as parents and then at the school, we talk about what, what's the goal of discipline is to change behavior. We're going to discipline you. There are consequences to your behavior, but the goal of it is to change behavior. It's not to punish you. It's to change behavior. God's goal, God's process is to change our hearts and change our behavior. Yeah, that justice. I like that. Yeah. Other thoughts? <laughs> yeah, that's a great. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. It, the hard part of that is God not the linear component. The way we're looking at it, He's not looking at it through the linear lens. So, I I completely agree with the the question. I think the hard part of answering how do you answer that when He's out of time? Um, but I think yes, yeah. I never thought about it that way in terms of the progression. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and that's, a, I remember growing up thinking that the God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament were so different. Um, but Hebrews tells us it's the same God and there is no, but the character of the way it plays out for us is how we sometimes characterize it. And I, I think you're right about that. Um, but it always, always goes back to his love and his original intent. And that's why we always have to go back to Genesis 1 and 2 without uh, jumping ahead. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Does the wrath still pour out on us after Jesus has come? I hear yes. What do we think? His wrath is satisfied through the blood of Jesus. I guess it's def- it would go back to how do you define wrath, right? <laughs> That's going to be the question because there's still consequences to our actions. Yeah, is wrath different than that is what we'd have to answer, right? So that, that's a great question. And we could stay for another two hours. <laughs> but I, I think that I would say, yeah, the definition of wrath would be the hard part. But I do think there are still consequences to our sinful actions which is under God's sovereignty and his providence. Yeah, yeah and I think, that I, I love what you said, you know, and I think, again, it's pulling away the individual versus the collective. And, and that's the hard part because we're so attuned to doing the individual part, and, and that's how we think. Yeah. Yes? Well, that's a good question. A grief, a grief. Grace. Hmm. So take that to the next level. When you, what do you mean by that? Yeah. 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 If we're listening, yes. Which reminds us of our story today. If we're listening, yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That I think you're right. I think that's the that's the question. And so I'm going to blame last year whoever taught this lesson because they used the word wrath. But next year I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. I think it's a great. This is a great conversation to think about in context and to consider the whole meta-narrative, right? And hopefully that's what we were trying to show you is going through Jeremiah to Paul to modern day, God's story. And as Christine said, we're part of that story and we continue to live out pieces of this. Let me wrap us up because I want to get out, out of here on time. We started with this map. And as we think of God's one redemptive story, we, we've gotten to the end of the Kings. It's a significant end of an Old Testament era but I love this map, and I know you can't understand it, but if this is the map of Jesus' ministry, right? And what I love is you put these two next to each other because it, it, it's a picture of the one true king, 
right? So we end our story with the divided kingdom. We end our story with both kingdoms on the left are decimated. But if we were to go in and if you were to read this and you see where Jesus did his ministry and where he spent his time, what do you notice? He's uniting the kingdoms. He's bringing the people together. Right? And so it's a fascinating way you put these two maps next to you. It's a reminder of this one redemptive story that here Jesus spent his time in both. And not everyone liked that he did that. Right? Even his own disciples at times. Or what good can come out of Nazareth? Or why are we dealing with the Samarian woman? And all the things that took place, you think of the stories of Jesus. But when you think about it in the context of the Old Testament, it's a fascinating way to look at the divided kingdom. But it's the one true king who comes back to bring us together. And then, as we've indicated and kind of referenced tonight, Matthew 21, and we think about Jerusalem, and we think of the end of the southern kingdom, and then we go forward in history to when Jesus enters on Palm Sunday. And even then, there was confusion. Because there was a lot of people there who were hoping he was going to do what? It was going to be an earthly kingdom. And he said, that's not what I'm here for. It's a spiritual kingdom. So hopefully you see those themes as we go throughout the history of the Israelite people and then how we can see our story in this story and what we can apply and learn from that. Any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, comment was, uh, if you were to talk to Jewish people today, they may have a different concept or um, perspective, thank you, of God's wrath today on the Jewish people today. Yeah. In, in modern history is what I, I think we say, yeah. It's an interesting perspective, yeah. Any other questions or comments? Well, we covered a lot of ground, historical and theological. Uh, appreciate your input and participation. Let me pray for us, and we'll get you on with your evening. Father God, we're grateful for, again, this opportunity. We're thankful for this church and their willingness to uh, allow for this time and for this study, and we're grateful for what you continue to teach us each and every time we gather. I ask that you be with my friends, and as we go uh, through our night and prepare for tomorrow and what you have in, in store for us, uh, that may we always be a light for you. Uh, and we're grateful as we look at this time in history that we can see ourselves and Lord that you still speak through your word to us and as we started with you are true to your word and for that we are eternally 